Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm David Getson. Our previous look at Sullivan's system of ornament noted his attention to the principle of a germinating seed. We had remarked that, even without knowing about DNA, Sullivan was already exploring what it meant for a growing entity to adapt to its surroundings, while also containing genetic information that expressed distinct identity and shape in said environment. This conversation between stimulus and response is near the core of his approach to organic architecture, and a redefinition of life itself. Sullivan was very much aware of the contemporary biological research that had been laying groundwork for the developing field of genetics, and the metaphysical, what Sullivan referred to as the spiritual powers of mankind, served as the bridge to mirror advances from the intellectual powers of science into the physical powers of architecture. These interlinked frameworks of investigation and discovery are the powers that his book's title refers to as being in accord with his organic system of ornamentation. Within notes to his illustrated plates, Sullivan directs anyone wishing to further study organic development to Asa Gray's School and Field Book of Botany. This tome explains, among other things, the generally applied outlines of plant growth and formation. In describing germination, the birth, so to speak, of a new plant, Gray raises the question that would be later known as that of nature versus nurture, namely, is identity carried within the inherited information or shaped through context? He asks rhetorically, was this plantlet formed in the seed at the time of germination, something as the chick is formed in the egg during the process of incubation? Or did it exist before, in the seed ready formed? Disregarding how context is clearly in dialogue with innate identity, the botanist feels that the perennial query is conclusively settled. To decide this question, we have only to inspect a sound seed to see there is hardly an exception to the fact that the plantlet exists ready formed in the seed. Sullivan was fond of ideas with broad implications. In kindergarten chats, he fondly remembered his geometry professor at the École des Beaux-Arts saying, We must make our descriptions so general as to admit no exception. In attempting to understand life 
and accordingly create architecture informed by what he understood, Sullivan set his compass as wide as possible. In A System of Ornament, he cautiously expresses a view, rare in the West today, and with the exception of students of Leibniz and Diderot, even rarer in Sullivan's time, that all of existence is life. Nothing was outside the all-embracing domain of life, the universal power or energy which flows everywhere at all times, in all places, seeking expression in form, and thus parallel to all things. If architecture was life expressed as form, life itself, as a phenomenon and process, had to be investigated for architecture to be practiced correctly. Going beyond the primary descriptions of the dynamics of the seed germ and leaf development to draw closer to the nature of life, Sullivan urged the advanced student who wishes to investigate the power that antedates the seed germ, which in reality is a sort of embryo, to look into that remarkable work by Professor Wilson, The Cell in Development and Heredity. Edmund Beecher Wilson was a zoologist and geneticist publishing groundbreaking research on cells, the recursive implications of cellular dynamics, of how a body is made up of cells of unique identity, which in turn contain entities of a similarly relative independence, are profound. By 1904, one of Wilson's students, Theodore Boveri, was able to define chromosomes as independent entities which retain their independence even in the resting nucleus. What comes out of the nucleus is what goes into it. Long before 21st century neurology was trumpeting to the world that identity is not isolated ego, but rather a centered dialogue between subject and environment, cellular biology had reached a similar reframing. The visual work in Sullivan's book, his step-by-step -step diagrams explicating the development of simple geometry into complex forms, were how he addressed architecture in A System of Ornament. He seemed to have wished to explain his entire method in several volumes of visuals alone, a sort of philosophy via pattern book. But standing at what would be the last months of his life, he admitted that, to evidence its varied suggestions apart, by graphic illustrations would require space far beyond the limits of this work, however interesting it might be to the advanced student 
to observe a scientifico-poetic theory, or rather conviction, gradually unfold itself to the physical eye. In a direct sense, he saw shapes themselves as the process, outcome and lesson, all as an integral package. In a footnote to an illustration on the development of axis and subaxis into free line form, he writes that any line, straight or curved, may be considered an axis and therefore a container of energy and a directrix of power. Prior to Sullivan's book, there had been much discussion and debate about life force, or what Bergson called elan vital. Philosophers, chemists, biologists, and even the early pioneers of electromagnetism all thought that they would be able to discover something essential to life, something distinct and separate that animated matter. Despite many valuable advances being made in its pursuit, this quiddity was never found, though it could be argued this was not because the principle of life force was erroneous, but rather because it was being looked for in the wrong way. The animating properties of life would not be isolated. If one takes the injunctions of Leibniz, Diderot, and with this text Sullivan seriously, however, life is not an animating force that is inserted either by deity or accident into specially blessed entities from a virus on up to humans. This idea of animating principle as inseparable from a thing goes back to Aristotle's De Anima, his treatise on the soul and life force. If one steps back from it, the notion of a binary distinction between living and non-living things does seem rather forced and odd. Instead of something that is magically granted to a select set of entities, it is more usefully considered as a property of all matter. Life can be viewed as intrinsic to all things in various degrees and different ways. Anything that evidences displacement of entropy, in other words, anything carrying pattern and order, is life. Sullivan's argument is not explicit on this point of reorientation. In some parts of the text, he still refers to communion with living and lifeless things. However, right at the start, he refers to stone, metal, and wood not as simply lifeless, but as what appears to be so, but nothing is really inorganic to the creative will of man. His spiritual power masters the inorganic 
and causes it to live in forms which his imagination brings forth from the lifeless, the amorphous. It is not what lacks vital force or animation that is thought to lack life, it is entropy, that which is amorphous, that which lacks shape, pattern, and order. Sullivan also argues that it is by powers inherent within mankind that order, and therefore life, can be brought into existence. These powers are of course not exclusive, but they are also, in contrast to common belief, not external. In a somewhat cursory way, we have insistently spoken of man's powers as originating and contained within himself, that is, as not given from without or from above through any process of magic, benevolence, dispensation, or special selective choice. In other words, it is desired to be understood that such powers are natural, even when dormant, suppressed, or inarticulate, they are potential. It is now insisted that genius is potentially universal. Now, with minds reasonably free from current superstition, surviving traditional faith in multifarious magical formulas, together with a concurrent homage paid to phantasms and mirages, let us regard man's powers in a simple, informal way. Let us try to visualize, in a measure, the natural man, the seat of genius. It is reasonably clear that with the mention of superstition, Sullivan wishes to set aside the religious practices of his time, much as Kandinsky had referred to all adherents of traditional and contemporary religion as atheists. Casting man as the seat of genius is a classical formulation, and following from it, the space and structure about it comprises the genius loci. Sullivan was intimately familiar with the writings of the Roman architect Vitruvius, going so far as to state in Autobiography of an Idea that form ever follows function, was directly inspired by the Vitruvian virtues of firmitas, utilitas, and venustas. This calmly ambiguous relation to the past and present is unusual among modern architects. Usually there is the simple admiration of a quaint or beautiful past, pitched against an overwhelming but inevitable future, while Sullivan eagerly discarded legacy and convention, he was also clearly inspired by the past in his ideas, if not his designs, 
the text of a system is spare, but extremely rich, with only seven pages of writing and twenty illustrated plates. In one demonstration reminiscent of quadrature, he includes a gnomic caption stating, These simple forms of ancient discovery and use were given esoteric meaning and occult powers by the men of that day in an effort to control, by means of formulas and secret ritual, the destiny of man amidst the powers of nature. With mystic numbers and other phenomena, they formed part of an elaborate system of magic to which the world pinned its faith. The architect's focus is neither to lionize nor to discard these ancient traditions, maintaining that, with his arguments, a new faith is advanced, a faith in man, an unwavering faith that man, with his natural powers, developed and free, may and shall control his destiny through the finer magic of his enlarged vision and of his will to attain. Master of the inorganic and the organic, he will, when he has found himself, become master of himself. The old injunction to self-actualize and know thyself that was said to be inscribed above the entrance to the temple at Delphi is invoked by Sullivan in a contemporary setting. Central to this new faith in man are several concepts. The redefinition of life as encompassing all that contains order and pattern, acknowledging that man's powers are congenital, that they are not gifts received from any other source, and that full awareness of these powers within oneself as the seat of genius shapes the world around according to sympathy. Sympathy implies exquisite vision, the power to receive as well as to give, to enter into a unison with nature's powers and processes. Sullivan sees various inherent powers as acting via sympathy from within the self-aware subject upon the surrounding world in order to create form. He considers any separation of them into a system of distinct labeling to be a convenient fiction, and offers his own classification of physical, intellectual, emotional, moral, and spiritual powers. Following a favorite phrase of his disciple, Frank Lloyd Wright, function can be seen as power applied to purpose. That form follows function should be broadened into something more expansive than strict utilitarianism is widely accepted, but it is rarely noticed that Sullivan himself provided a framework for this expansion. Each 
of these groups of powers implies a distinct set of values. The author is insistent that balance is required. Man reaches the summit of his powers when all these incremental powers are enfolded in his dream of creative power, and he rises to the heights of that utterly simple artificer, that super-manipulator who materializes his dreams in the everyday world for the good of mankind. This is a belief in and practice of union with instead of adoration of the divine. But of course, it isn't easy. Striking a balance of values is a never-ending effort. Sullivan writes that the trail to man's simple powers leads with many windings through the jungle of complexities we call civilization. It isn't an accident that the arbitrary yet meaningful line in the sand that people in the West usually draw to demarcate civilization from the uncivilized is the remaining evidence of monumental or at least settled architecture. If Sullivan's hylozoic position on life is to be believed, those long-abandoned settlements are ancestral bones, just as much as the contents of any tomb or mausoleum. And just as the knowledge of ancient DNA can change our lives, Studying the past can change our understanding of buildings, so long as they are understood as organisms, rather than as mere representations. Join us as we take a closer look at the powers of genius that Sullivan perceived as universal, next time on Lapsus Lima.